Hello, I'm David Hepworth. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear, the latest of hundreds of chats Mark Allen and I have had over recent years, some between ourselves and others with musicians, authors, comedians, and other people we like. If you'd like to help make sure they continue, you might consider becoming a Patreon supporter by visiting patreon.com slash wordinyourear or just by liking or subscribing in whatever way you prefer. On with the show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay. We are recording. Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to another Word in Your Ear. And very pleased to have with us today a gentleman who is uh, best known as uh, the sonic architect of what I think it's fair to call the seminal first two albums from The Strokes, Mr. Gordon Raphael. Hello, Gordon. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, thanks for coming on. And uh, where are you beaming in from today? I'm beaming in from West Yorkshire, UK, up here in Hebden Bridge. Hebden Bridge, wow, swinging West Yorkshire. So uh-huh. I guess the climate's not too different to where you grew up, which was the Seattle area. Is that yeah, right? I think it's very similar. It tends to rain. Ten, so the, Seattle's the rainiest city in the US, isn't it? It well, Officially. I, it seems like when I grew up, it rained almost every other day or something all year round. And yeah. I think it's less rainy now, you know, because of the global shift. It yeah. still really rains a lot, but nothing like it did when I was a kid. Well, I spent quite a lot of time there this year, actually, funnily enough. And it, I think it's only actually rained once and it was proper rain. Um, but um, we got pretty lucky, I think. But so tell, tell me what it was like, like growing up in Seattle around the music scene there, because you were right in the middle of the grunge thing right, right well i started earlier um i was working in music for at least like a decade before the grunge thing happened yeah. and i describe in my book that there was a lot of very incredible bands like really innovative very poetic and everybody dressed amazing in like these uh in the 80s early 80s like in these incredible vintage suits and uh punk rock ethic um really creative people but it was a very small scene right. so there was one or two venues in our town where you could play original music and they were open like one or two nights a week so it was very small but very sincere and a lot of fun and watching all these people play informed my ideas like wow you could really push yourself 
to go out further and further and make interesting music. And did you have any idea at the time that grunge, for example, would become so big and so global? Or, or did it just feel like it was something that was contained in the area and kind of kind of special, special to your scene? Well, the moment it became grunge, there was already like Tad and Mudhoney were traveling into England and there was like there was a big buzz. Like what bands were leaving our town and going to UK and touring? This was unheard of. So before grunge, it was like everybody had to leave to go to San Francisco or L.A. or New York. But once the late 80s happened and Soundgarden and Nirvana appear, it's like Seattle became the place and it just blew up very quickly. Became a lot of fun to live there. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And and you sort of drifted into recording, didn't you? Your, your, your life just took you in that direction. And um yeah. I learned how to record because I wanted to make my own songs and I didn't want any engineer or know-it-all guy standing around shaking their head about my singing and my guitar playing. <laughs> but let me do it by myself and I'm going to come up with some stuff. And so did anybody actively teach you or did you just figure it out on the go? And I mean, and kind of utilize that sort of punk DIY spirit. And I think, I think after getting out of school, I didn't really like teachers. I didn't really have a good feeling about teachers. And yeah. I thought, oh, I want to go where the teachers don't even know how to go. I want to I want to just find my own way. I had a very good friend in one of my bands who recorded his own music on a four track yeah. and came up with the most brilliant stuff. And I thought, wow, that is a really great example. So I used a good friend's example and then I kind of went struck out on my own and it was very slow going. I wasn't a natural at it at all. But you found your own way there, of course. You yeah, know. Yeah. Um, like after a couple of years of messing around and failing and giving up, one piece of my music got finished. And from that point on, like I was really pleased with it. And from that point on, it's just like whatever I tried, I could always make an interesting recording. It was a big breakthrough. And there's a lot to be said for, you know, uh, for being intuitive and finding your own way towards your art. You know, my mind was blown when I, when I learned that the Beatles had no idea what chords they were playing. Wow. Um, And yet all this amazing music was just pouring out of them. You know, it's a, it's a very, it's very personal thing, isn't it? And, um, so you, you set up a studio or you had access to a studio. Was it a bear Creek, which is just out outside of Seattle? Tell us a bit about that. Well, at first for, for a long, long time, like over a decade, I was just using borrowed equipment in my apartment. I'd borrow a friend's four track, another friend's guitar, and I was making music all every day, just a new song, a new song, a new song. And then um, I'd say near the middle of the grunge scene, I met a great singer named Anne Hadlock and her family owned Bear Creek Studio, which is just outside of Seattle. And at the time, the Foo Fighters were making their second album there. Wow. And it's an amazing place. Soundgarden had recorded there. Alice in Chains. Eric Clapton had gone out there. It was a, it's an incredible studio. And suddenly, because I'm in a band with Anne, her parents let us record there. And that was my first time experiencing good microphones and good speakers and good everything. And how did that change the game for you in terms of how you created music? Or did it? It really did, actually. Um, would I, When I was recording for all those years my own songs, I was just using the same SM57 microphone that's in every band rehearsal studio in the world. Like it's the cheapest, most common mic. And... Funnily enough, today I use those mics on snare drum every session I do. 
But when you sing through them, you have to do a lot of dancing and a lot of tricks to make it sound like a vocal. Right. And so I was using lots of effects and echoes and phase shifters and lots of radical EQ to make it sound like something. So I go to Bear Creek and Anne's dad gets out this C12 vintage German microphone and sets it up. And as soon as she sings into it, it sounds so damn good that I actually burst out laughing. Like I couldn't believe like, what in the world am I uh, slapping my knee? Going like, <laughs> what am I hearing? It sounds like Ella Fitzgerald on a jazz record already. And he's just running it, you know, straight into the board. So I learned it was very eye opening what good equipment could sound like right off the bat. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, there's one more thing I want to ask you about, Seattle, and it's about a shop called The, the Trading Musician, because um, oh. I, I spent a bit of time there this summer. I had to get a Rickenbacker fixed, and we went to um, the Guitar Centre, which for anybody who's watching is not from the US, the Guitar Centre is, I suppose, like the Walmart of musical instrument shops, right? It's very yeah. corporate, very clinical, it's a big chain. Mm-hmm. And their repair guy wasn't there. So they directed us to the trading musician, which was about hundred yards down the road. And we went in and it smelled of dust and it was full of people with interesting facial hair called things like Chet and Buster. And the guy took a quick look at the guitar and fixed it for us for free. And I fell in love with the place forever and ever and ever. Wow. And uh, so, I mean, uh, the trading musician, it's been going since forever, hasn't it? Yes, they, they have a, I think they're in their, like they have a, a second location now or, or in a third location. Back mm-hmm. in the grunge days when I was signed on a band and I had an income and a record deal, I'd ride my bike up to the trading musician and I'd go like, hmm, oh, look. And I'd buy like a Les Paul and an SG and a Stratocaster and a Fender bass. I've just got so much gear from them, synthesizers, really brilliant shop. And everybody in there just loves music and loves instruments. Yeah, it's it's very, very hands-on, isn't it? If you could if you could describe your ideal music shop to anyone, it would probably be that be that that place, wouldn't it? Full of vintage gear and they've got and an entire good. pedal wall devoted to weird sounds. It's labeled weird sounds. Another thing which I really, really loved about the place. But great. And so then you obviously you grew up in Seattle, and then you moved to New York. You moved to New York a couple of times, didn't you? But tell yeah. us about the first time, which was the eighties, wasn't it, when things yeah. were a little well, bit different. I was living in a church in Seattle with a bunch of punk rockers and we had a recording studio and it's basically as you do as you do it was basically party central and nobody had jobs and everyone had terrible drug habits right okay the place burned down with a, a mysterious fire and the place burned down and I had wow. friends in New York who said come on out here come on out you know we got some gear for you to play you can continue your recording so I went to New York with dreams of being a star with my West Coast weird sound. <laughs> the first time I went to New York, I utterly failed. Um, all my Seattle friends who moved to New York succumbed to the East Village flu, which is another word of saying addiction to cheap and very terrible drugs. East Village flu. <laughs> right, East Village flu. It's like a showbiz cold, isn't it? And I always thought they were so stupid because it happened to everyone in a row and they all had to go back to Seattle and live with their moms. You know, I was, <laughs> I was the last to go and the same thing happened to me and I had to come back and go to rehab and live at my dad's basement. It was very humiliating. Um, but the second time when I went with Ann Hadlock, from Bear Creek Studios, and we went there because the grunge scene was kind of folding up. 
Kurt Cobain died. Yeah. Soundgarden broke yeah. up, and pretty soon I could feel it going back to being a fishing village. The scene wasn't alive anymore. So we moved to New York to pursue our music, and that's where suddenly people found out I could record things, and I had a studio, and I started recording bands and became a producer for other bands. So was that Chateau Relaxo? Yes, very good. And tell us a bit about that. So that was kind of a, a series of fortuitous events as well, wasn't it? A lot of fortuitous, fortuitous events, especially because I was actually off drugs. So even during the grunge era, when I had my record deal and everything, it was the first time in my life where I was kind of clear headed and all these good things were happening one after the other. Um, so as soon as we got to New York, we didn't know where we were going to rehearse and I didn't know where I was going to put my synthesizers and all my equipment that I'd gathered during the grunge era. And my partner, Ann Hadlock, found in the Village Voice an ad for a studio that needed people to be there during the day because the guy worked during the day and he wanted it all night and I could have it all day. And it was a prototype of a very futuristic studio at that time, 1998. Surely that's the best end of the deal as well, being able to have it in the day, actual normal person's hours. I like to stay up late, but I don't like to stay up all night. My My partner did. So... The reason this was a futuristic model of a studio is because this guy was a real genius. His name's Scott Clark. He started the studio Chateau Relaxo. And instead of having a multi-million dollar recording console and an old tape deck that needed repairing all the time, all those kind of classic studios were going out of business. It was just too hard to keep up the rent and maintaining the equipment. So he bought like two Neve preamps, an Avalon, a bunch of like little pe- little amounts of very good gear and had a computer at the heart of the studio, which was the early days of using computers to record on. He was a computer genius and he figured out how to like work with the preferences. So we had a rock solid system with Logic Audio, which was a German software at the time. Mm-hmm. They sold it to Apple okay. years later, but at this time it was a German from eMagic Company. And then Pro Tools hardware was in the computer. And this whole combination of classic preamps and microphones, this Mac computer, which was called, uh, let's see, a Power Mac. It was before the days of the G4s or anything like that. Wow, okay. And this software, <laughs> eMagic Logic and Pro Tools hardware, it just had results. It could make incredible classic sounds in a really like kind of maintainable way. So it was a, a very futuristic idea for a studio. And Imagine was eventually bought out by Lo- by Apple, wasn't it? And right. became and Logic. I, I don't like it. I haven't liked it since. It used to be the coolest. It was miles ahead of Pro Tools. For example, with Pro Tools in the 90s, it, you had to open... Pro Tools could do audio, but then you had to link it to another really clunky software like Cakewalk or something to do MIDI at the same right. time. And then eMagic comes along, and in the late 90s, they already had one window with <laughs> recording, one window was audio. So it was like miles ahead of really great technology. I recorded both Strokes albums on this form of logic. Wowzers, that's insane. It's true. So then you set up, you met a chap from Germany, from Berlin, called Moses Schneider, right? And Mr. Schneider, yes. That led to your next studio in New York. Yes, yes. So tell us a bit about that. It was a transporter room, right? Transporter realm. So at Chateau Relaxo, 
many of my friends that I had in New York were German, Swiss, and Austrian. So I was recording a lot of, of them. And one of my German friends, Nico Weidemann, said, there's a producer in Berlin who's really up and coming. Everybody loves him. And he would love your studio here in New York. And so Moses Schneider came over and started bringing German bands to record in my studio because it looked so cool for his German CDs to say recorded in Manhattan. You know, it's just, he loved <laughs> that idea and he loved being in New York. So we eventually got evicted from Chateau Relaxo. And Moses said, well, if you get another studio, I will send you a boatload of gear and some money. I, I, I really want to keep this relationship going. Wow. So I, I, me and my partner, my new partner, Jimmy Goodman, we found a basement on 2nd Street and Avenue A in the East Village. And I told Moses, and he was so generous that I named the studio after his studio, which was Transporterraum which is like the transporter room on uh, Star Trek, you know, where you can... <laughs> right. That's brilliant. And it turned out to be quite serendipitous, didn't it? Because um, am I right in saying that Albert Hammond Jr. just turned up on the doorstep one day? Well, if I could factually analyse that, it Absolutely. would be when, you know, already at Chateau Relaxo, I had the stream of clients coming down and I was really like, wow, I'm a producer and... At, at Transporterraum, I had a little business card printed up and I went all over the East Village whenever a band was playing at a club and I gave them my card. And so I saw the Strokes play at a small venue called Luna Lounge, 50 people, and I gave them my business card. And the next day, Albert Hammond came over and said, you know, we've seen a lot of really weird studios, like mostly commercial facilities that look really sterile, like they just assume make a television commercial, then record a band. And we don't want to be in a place like that. Yeah. So he saw my studio, which was in a basement with red glitter walls, purple glitter walls, <laughs> dim light, yes. doll lamps. It was like he liked it. And he ran, he told me that he ran home to tell Julian, like, this is the studio we got to record in. And that's how I got hooked up with them. So tell us a little bit about your time recording the strokes, because I mean, um, <clears throat> I think I feel like one thing that gets overlooked by them quite a lot um, is because they looked so fantastic and they had such exotic names. Um, the, 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 the fact that their, their music is so tight and so, precisely played yes. um i mean and that's really I, I think they get tarred in with the same brush as the you know bands like the libertines quite a lot who are quite scratchy and of you know of the set yeah. of, of a completely different ilk but the strokes were very 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 um incredibly precise in the way they played things and incredibly clever in the way they put their songs together um yeah. and what strikes me in the book is 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 how meticulous they were with getting every note completely right. You, you talk about Fab, the drummer, coming back to you to go over individual drum thwacks, you know, to make sure that each in individual hit is yeah. completely on point and completely on the grid. And right. tell us a bit more about that. Well, first of all, they did have great names because I think most of them are first generation Americans where like, I know Fab was born in Brazil and um, the other one's dads were born in like France and Madrid. So it's a very international first generation New Yorker band. And then, yeah. yeah, you would think from listening to the music and from seeing the pictures that this band would be like passed out on the studio floor with hundreds of beers and be, couldn't wait to get to the bar across the road. They just do a few performances and just let me sort it out. 
but it was completely the opposite. These guys had a plan for everything and they came in rehearsed to military precision and they wouldn't let anything they played slip. They wouldn't say the classic thing that most musicians would say like, Hey, it's good enough for rock and roll or it's close enough to, for jazz or um, it's not supposed to be rocket science. They made it rocket science. They were analyzing everything they did. And if it could be done at a better tempo or more tight or more a different sound or more well-balanced, they were all on it. Every single one of them participated on a very high level. And I was super impressed with that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And you were very impressed with the way they communicated with each other as a band, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. Very democratic and very, they were very forthright and honest with each other without being cutting or right. unfair or unkind. You know, working on music together is guaranteed to ruffle feathers. Someone's going to say something that's going to hurt someone else's feeling, especially if they're tired or we've been overworking. But in this case, I noticed that these kids had an incredible level of communication because if someone had an issue, they would just have talk it out, you know, and they would just get it over and done with immediately. It wouldn't be like a silent thing where one guy's sulking for half of it or leaving the studio. And I thought, wow, a lot of my older musician friends and personal friends could really learn from this form of uh, communication. And one thing that surprised me about the strokes uh, a little while in was when I learned that Julian had written all the songs and they weren't written all together as a band. I mean, how did that dynamic work with bringing them to the studio and, and arranging the parts? I mean, right. would, would the parts be there in a raw form and they just bash them into shape or? There was no way they were going to come in without every thing absolutely as under control as they possibly could. They were rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing before I even met them. You know, they knew what they wanted to do. Yeah. All right. And at that time, they all shared a common dream, which was like, we love Julian's music and we're going to play it with like our life dependent on it. Cause I think things are going to go good. Could, could, could go good for our band. And we could be like not bartenders and not students. We could be out there playing music around the world. And so they had this dream and this ambition to work towards that. 
And was there a moment when you're recording, is this it, where you thought, hang on a second, this this could go somewhere really, really far? That moment actually happened in between. I made an EP with them at first. Yeah. It wasn't even supposed to be EP, right? Right. It wasn't supposed to be an EP. It was just a demo of three songs so they could get some gigs, right? And then Rough Trade in in UK picked it up and they were suddenly touring in UK. They never even toured north of 14th Street in New York. And here they were flying to UK to tour. This was incredible. And then this article came out in NME saying that this thing, the modern AGP is our record of the week. And I would never have imagined that in a million years. This was a time when guitar music was not popular, yeah, yeah. especially in America. <laughs> Like nobody would listen, no labels would like that music at the time, okay? So for this little shock of getting signed on Rough Trade and touring and getting this NME feature, at that point I go, hold on here. Like nothing I've ever recorded before has had this reaction. This is actually blowing up. You know, this is something's going on. And by the time we're only a few months later, we're recording Is This It?, it was already the feeling that the whole ear was holding their, the whole world was holding their ear, waiting to see what was going to come out of our basement studio. I remember it was like an atom bomb going off. It was just astonishing. And, you know, everybody all of a sudden changed the way they dressed. And, you know, mm-hmm. you could tell that this something was happening. But <clears throat> I mean, for me, um, I just want to talk about the recording process from your end a, a, just a little bit, because um, I still remember exactly the exactly what I was doing, where I was the first time I ever heard last night, I'd read about this song in the enemy and I heard it and it just felt like it was, it was being beamed in from a different time. It felt really new, but really, really timeless at the same time. And I've never heard a band before or since really capture that. Um, and, um, I, you know, for, for my money, at least the strokes wouldn't have had the impact they had without that sound, which of course, you know, was, was, was of your creation. So, I mean, how did that work when you were putting, was it, was it a conscious decision to make the record sound that way and not, not sort of pander to modern, I wouldn't say right. modern techniques, but that kind of big, huge, um, well, um, go on. Sorry. Blueprint for both of the records I worked on, uh, Is This It and Room on Fire, happened during the EP. You know, I get this band in, and because I'm a musician and a composer myself, I kind of made it my job that if I'm going to take people's money and record their music, I'm actually going to ask them, what are we doing here? What would you like to hear? Like, where are we going with not just like, I've got the Gordon Raphael method, play your damn songs and thanks a lot. You'll like it. No. It's like, what do you want to do guys? And the first thing they said to me was, Hey, you know what everybody else is doing in New York right now? I go, yeah, I guess so. That's what we don't want to do. Right. Oh, so that kind of gave me a picture within a second, you know, like that, that did that one registered. What everybody's doing is pro tools is brand new. And suddenly instead of 24 tracks, like we used to have, or 48 if you're Michael Jackson linking two digital tape machines together. Wow. Everybody had 64 channels to work with. And what were they doing? They were using a Bob Clear Mountain kick drum sample with the drummer's drum and an 808 kick drum at the same time and four different tambourines and backing vocals and triple guitar. It was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So all I said to them was like, In my studio, I have eight inputs and eight microphones. So if you want to do what people aren't doing now, just go out there and play your song 
and I'll record it with my eight microphones and we'll add the vocals afterwards and check it out. And they played their music. The, they did the instrumentals this way with one mic on each amp, three mics on the drums, one in the middle of the room. And they came in and they said, yeah, that's it, that's it dude. You know, we like that. That is so damn cool. And it was so, simple as that to kind of get the blueprint of the instruments. And then there was another story about the vocals. And if you wanted me to tell you that, I will. Yes, please do. Absolutely. Okay. So we recorded the instruments first and it was time for Julian to go out. And as I say in my book, he was very unusual because most singers are just like jumping up and down, waiting for their chance to shine. You know, they've got their scarf and their, you know, their bottle of wine and their pick favorite pictures. And they're ready to jump out into the studio and sing. And they just can't wait for the people to be done their instruments. Well, when the instruments were done, I said, Hey, Julian, uh, it's time for the vocals. He goes, now I have to, I have to sing now. He's like really reticent and he's kind of shy about it. And he kind of, had his head down. It looked real serious. I mean, whoa, what what kind of lead singer is this? This is a <laughs> not the usual character. And so I said, what would you like for your vocals? He said, I don't know. I want something really special. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Just like try something. You know, what do you think? And so I've been listening to industrial music throughout the 90s. Like my favorite band was Skinny Puppy from Vancouver, Canada. Okay. And they ran their vocals through something called the shitalizer. The shitalizer. Shitalizer. It was a distortion process of nuclear devastation. Like, wow. Ending, distorted, screaming vocals. Okay. So I said, hey, check this out, Julian. And I put my best equipment, my Avalon preamp, up to 10, where it was just sounding like a Marshall amp frying out a guitar. <laughs> and he sang the song and he came in and I said, how do you like that? And he said, that is an ugly sound. I hate it. And then he thought for a minute. He said, you know how your favorite jeans, they're, they're not brand new, but they don't have holes in them. And I go, oh, uh, okay. And that one took me a while. And I thought maybe, hmm, not new. So not brand clean, but not with holes like what I'm doing. So I dialed it back from 10 to 4. And there was a slight overdrive, but it wasn't completely ruined. And he sang again with the new setting on the Avalon. And he came back and him and the whole band were like jumping up and down. He wasn't jumping up and down, but the band were. Yeah. And JP, their guru was. They were all like, yeah, dude, that is the sound. And that from that point on, that's what we used. I mean, once again, it's that, you know, for, for me, that that fuzzy vocal um you know, it's it, it's buried ever so slightly in the mix as well, isn't it? It, it that's that encompasses the strokes and what make the whole package so utterly special and and really explosive at the time. It just it it seemed to exist on its own plane completely, and I think it still does. You know, for me, those two records are unmatchable, absolutely, especially for such a bunch of sickeningly young musicians. You know, um, so you've got this experience of recording the band, and then um, you also recorded Regina Spector. Yes. Um, Obviously, a solo artist, really singular talent. Um, tell us about her. Well, I play piano myself. That was my first instrument, you know. And so when I see somebody who's mesmerizingly good on the piano, I instantly kind of shut up and I pay attention. Mm. And she was this combination of this incredible piano skill 
but this kind of moldy peaches, like out of left field vocal thing. Like she's, her her lyrics were just blowing my mind. Like, what is she talking about? And she's combining this classical piano technique with these really weird kind of New York underground tales. And I didn't know where they were coming from. She's kind of like an author of novels and she was really young. So I didn't know how she could have all this experience to draw from. And this was basically my first impression. Yeah. And I actually named my book, The World is Going to Love This, because when I heard Regina play, I said, oh, my God, the world is going to love this. I have to record it right now. It just we were I wasn't scheduled to record that record. It was just I was just meeting her. Yeah. And when she, I saw her play, I just needed to record it. And we we wound up recording the same day immediately after. She's hugely charismatic, though, isn't she? I, mean, I guess her and Julian Casablancas, for example, they kind of exist on the opposite ends of the spectrum, don't they? Julian's very cool and reserved, and Regina's just big, big, yeah. uh, really huge personality. She had a, some kind of drum, didn't she? She was playing yeah, the piano with the, the left hand. That was the song. That was the song. She, the first thing she did is she whips out this drumstick and starts hitting a chair, and it sounds like horses galloping, while her left hand is doing these insane runs on the bottom end of the piano, and she's looking up at me singing Poor Little Rich Boy, that song, which reminded me of Patti Smith and the Moldy Peaches and Joni Mitchell all rolled into one. What an unlikely combination. <laughs> That's a, pretty much the perfect combination, I think. I went and saw Patti Smith uh, do a cover of My Generation at Glastonbury and she finished by ripping the guitar strings off her guitar with her bare wow. hands. That's not easy to do. Astonishing, especially not for a you know 65-year-old lady. You know, my gosh. Um, really impressive. So then you moved to London, didn't you? And um, yeah. and you became involved with the with the Libertine Circle. So yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Well, I had met Pete and his manager Banny at the Heaven London Strokes show when let's see what songs was it hard to explain in New York City cops were released as singles before the album came out. And did Pete not get down on one knee and recite a poem? Yeah, to you? he did. He said. Uh, um, Banny introduced and said, hello, this is Pete. He has a band called the Libertines. And in fact, we're very interested in having you record their record. And I said, oh, wow, nice to meet you. And I was kind of overwhelmed because I'm in London. I hadn't been there for a very long time. The Strokes just played. There's tons of people all around at this after party and everyone's there because of the Strokes. I'm kind of feeling like this is the beginning of my new world. And Pete wearing a dapper suit and a trilby takes me into the middle of the floor of the of the party and he gets on a knee and he rolls his hat down his arm like that classic vaudeville thing <laughs> starts singing me a song like looking like like looking at me and singing and it's so charming and the song is so nice i'm thinking wow this guy is very special yeah i'll consider working with him and did you feel, I mean, what, how did you feel about their music at the time? Because they presented a demo to you, didn't they? And it was very right. different to the, the songs they ended up with on that first album. They presented me a demo and I was spending the summer running around Europe. I was going to spend the rest of the summer while the Strokes were doing their first uh, summer tour and playing at all the festivals in Europe and in the UK. I was going to go see friends in Mallorca and Berlin, and I brought this Libertines cassette. And one day I put it in my headphone. It wasn't a cassette. It was a CD. Mm. Um, I put it in my headphones and I thought, whoa, what is this music? It sounds like like turn of the century British barbershop or vaudeville. And I didn't really understand it. And it sounded fine. Like it sounded really fine. 
Um, and I, th- I wrote to their manager from an internet cafe, which dates it. You know, you went to internet cafes to write email. <laughs> and I said, you know, this band sounds really good, but I don't know much about this form of music, like this kind of uh, folk British music. It's not my specialty. I don't think I'd be the right producer for it. So that was that. And yeah. then flash forward about seven months and I'm landing in London and I meet Banny again under very interesting circumstances described again in my book. And um, she says, I know you didn't like that thing, but they just got signed to Rough Trade and they've completely changed their sound. Come to their rehearsal. And I thought, oh, God, I got to go to rehearsal. And I walk into Rue's studio on Old Street in Shoreditch area and they start playing. And right away, I'm going like, oh, my God, this is insane. This is so good. This is like I just landed with the 19 year old Beatles in a punk rock fashion. Wow. Harmonies down. The stories and the lyrics are great. Gary's drumming is off the hook. He's yeah. so wild and powerful on his drums. I just thought this is going to be the greatest and most loved music in the world. This is this is really the place to be right now. See, I've got a theory about the Libertines, and that's I don't know if you'll agree, but I think that one of the reasons that they um, uh, they ended up being so prominent on that scene was because John and Gary's rhythm section was so, so tight and it gave Pete and Carl room to breathe and be really, really loose. But, you know, you listen to those early records and the bass playing and the drumming in particular, it's really, really solid and it tethers yeah. the whole thing together. And I think with, with lesser musicians at the helm behind those instruments, maybe they wouldn't have had the impact they did because they would have been too messy. Yeah. I mean, that music was, in, when I heard that music, every song, I loved the songs and just seeing them work together and those early shows... I talk about one in particular at Cherry Jam. It might have been the very first performance they ever did with the lineup that's famous right now. Yeah. Um, and they just killed it. And everyone was there. All the people from the UK music industry and all the cool rock fans were there. And they just got on the stage and everybody's jaw fell open and they realized they were beholding something that was very important. And by then, you'd obviously created this sound that was was that was effectively spreading around the world, and the Libertines were heavily influenced by that. And how did, how did how did how did that feel? Well, it's interesting because when I did meet Banny, their manager, for the second time, she played me a series of demos that they made when they first signed to Rough Trade. And again, for the second time, I was absolutely kind of like I was offended, like what. That sounds like they're trying to rip off the stroke sound, but they got the sloppy balance wrong. It, like you can't hear the lyric. You can't hear what's going on. Just, they just copied the messy part. Yeah, Why yeah. did they copy the clear part too, right? But when I actually saw them play, it was different. It didn't sound like it didn't sound like the strokes. It did not remind me of the strokes at all. It reminded me of something completely different. The way those two guys were singing into that one mic, perfect harmonies and the craziest lyrics that only people from London or Britain <laughs> would understand. Like it was really Brit centric what they were talking about and their language. And so this felt like a completely different band than the Strokes in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So um we normally wrap these chats up, Gordon, uh with a with a bit with a bit of a cruel question, it has to be said. Uh where we like to ask our guests, what is the greatest record ever made? 
and everybody's uh, got the right answer. So I'm just curious to know what the right answer is according to Gordon Raphael. Well, my answer would change every single day, but today one popped in my mind as soon as you said it, and that is Are We Not Men by Devo. Are We Not Men by Devo? We never had that one before, Devo, actually. Devo, Devo. Devo, yes. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. That is like a brilliant album. It changed my life. I saw that concert live, and I was never the same after that. Never the same. Well, that's um, you, you. You sell it well. I'm going to go back and listen to that right away this morning, actually. But um, it's been lovely to talk to you today, Gordon. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this is um, the world is going to love this. Uh, up from the ba- basement with the Strokes. It's out now, is it not? Um, yes, it is. Published by Wordville. Um, yes. Get Available a on Rough Trade and Amazon and everywhere. There we are. Um, thanks once again, Gordon. It's been fab. Thank you for having me on, man. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.